As has already been mentioned, we are so blessed to be able to gather the name of Jesus Christ. It's a thrill and always such an exciting thing to appreciate. The great honor, of course, to assemble, to offer worship both in spirit and in truth to our great God in heaven. And so tonight we come together for a second opportunity today to do that very thing. Always excited, of course, for all who are present, not only our membership, but visitors alike. We're glad that you're here, and we hope all of us can be encouraged and edified and charged for this week to live in a way that's faithful and pleasing unto God. As you probably have already noticed, not only on the wall to both my left and right, but also in the bulletin, uh, it's uh, another lesson of questions and answers tonight. You notice back early in the year, we began to at least appreciate every now and then, we would have these lessons by and large directed in terms of subject material by you. Questions that you would ask and then we would devote our time to in fact providing an answer from the Word of God to those questions. Tonight, there are likely more questions that we shall be able to answer during the, the allotted time, but certainly we'll just move our way through them and we'll give some consideration to them. I would like to at least begin by offering a statement of appreciation for the questions that, that were posed in the box back there. And uh, our questions lead us first to this introductory slide. Isn't it so in 1 Peter 3.15, that text that was read a moment ago, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you, with meekness and with fear. And so our desire is to be sufficiently aware of and masters of that Word of God so that we could provide answers to those who would ask of you and me. Questions related, of course, to things in the Word of God. It is with that said, our first question takes us to this, to this particular idea. If I may paraphrase, there was a bit of presentation or a length in terms of it. Let me simply say this. The question, prompted in part by 1 Corinthians 6, is this. Is it wrong for a Christian to sue a business, to sue a particular employer, let's say, based perhaps as part of a lawsuit involving things like age discrimination, things that might involve other inappropriate matters touching the way that a business may carry on its affairs? And again, would it be wrong for a Christian to be a part of a lawsuit toward an employer, let's say, involving matters or involving considerations like this. As always, we'd be very impressed to realize that anybody desirous of knowing about pleasing God no doubt might race in his or her mind to 1 Corinthians 6. In fact, would you be turning to that chapter? It is on that occasion that Paul had something to say about Christians going to courts of law and it is in that chapter that we'll certainly find some reason to consider the specifics of this question. I won't read all of that chapter to be sure, but the first few verses really do say it like this. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust, and not before saints? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? And continuing onward in that chapter, Paul has some things to say to that church in Corinth about the very subject of proceeding to courts of law. Now, before you and I make certain to draw the conclusion that would be befitting of it, 
May I ask you to note this. What was happening? May I ask you to note some of the verses that appear in this very chapter because it does help us rather carefully to appreciate the matter. You'll notice on that third bullet point, that takes us in fact to verses 4 and 5. If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them... I'm sorry, lost my place in that verse. Set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that is able to judge between his brethren. There's something very specific noted about that phrase, among you. The circumstance that was under consideration here were people in the church at Corinth, both individuals were members of the church, and yet they were going to courts of law one against another. You can picture the scene. Two brothers who were supposed to be very carefully observed brothers in Christ, and yet they couldn't settle their disputes between each other. Not only that, they seemingly were unable to appreciate any satisfaction by even seeking the counsel of a wise person in that congregation. Rather, here were two brothers, and they were going to a civil court of law to settle this particular dispute between them. Well, you can probably immediately tell that circumstance isn't exactly the same as the one that was asking her question. Remember, that question was, what about some business? So this is not a brother in Christ. It's a particular business operating on a premise that is recognized as unlawful, that is recognized as unjust that is recognized as, shall we say, inappropriate in light of the behavior of the employees. And so it is with that in mind. Let's piece a few more things together, and then we'll come to a full answer to our question. Notice again, Jesus was describing on other occasions about how brothers in Christ ought to be able to handle disputes between themselves. If you have something against me, didn't Jesus say, if your brother has ought against you, you go to him and you explain that circumstance, Matthew 18, verse 15. If he'll hear you, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't, take a witness or two with you. Again, if he'll hear you, you've gained your brother. Now, at this point, you'll notice, he says, now, if he will not hear you, bring it before the church. And if he still won't hear you, you withdraw from him. But Jesus never said anything about taking to a court of law. This circumstance between brothers in Christ should be able to be handled without proceeding to courts of law. But the Bible doesn't say in any way it's wrong for a Christian to be party in a lawsuit with regard to a business, with regard to perhaps even an individual who is in the world. So it's not a brother in Christ. And there may well be sufficient reason to proceed under legal consideration to appreciate the justice which that might, in fact, bring about. Perhaps as examples to that, could I invite you to consider this? You'll notice in Acts 25, 11, wasn't it true Paul appealed to Caesar? Here was a man. Now remember, Paul was a Roman citizen. And yet, for the desire to bring about justice, he entered the matter of law. He appealed unto Caesar. In fact, he stated that twice, not only in Acts 25, 11, but later in Acts 28, 19. The same fact is, of course, stated again. 
So it's not always wrong for a Christian to be party in a lawsuit when that particular matter is, of course, one that doesn't just involve a brother in Christ, but is such that it desires to bring about the matter of law and upholding of what is just and right. Now, I would be quick to say it would be wrong for a Christian to be a party in some lawsuit that's rather frivolous. You and I have heard about those cases, perhaps when individuals seemingly are just in it for the money. The matter is really not a carefully considered matter at all. Now, a Christian ought not be greedy. They're not in this business just to make some money. But if it's a legitimate matter, the Bible doesn't condemn it as long as, again, it's not just a brother in Christ. So I hope that that provides us some answer to this one. And in addition, it was asked, if a Christian were involved in some lawsuit and there was some monetary amount that was to be gained therein, would that Christian be able to use that money, for instance, to pay health expenses or in some other ways that might pay expenses or bills of the family? Well, the answer is yes. You know, whatever money might be legitimately and reasonably received, it could be used in any other way that income for that family might, might well, in fact, be used. What about our second question of the night? This question, again, if I may state in a somewhat paraphrased way, it goes like this. Would it be wrong for a Christian to have a membership in a health club or to go to a gym for the purpose of exercise and for the purpose of, let's say, other activities that might benefit in the way of health? That's certainly a good question, just as our other one has been. You and I know that, that, that there are places. There's a gym at Tennessee Tech. There's other places in Cookville where there are people who go to work out. Would it be wrong for a Christian to go to a place like this? Well, let's start that discussion as follows. May I say, there appears to be a number of factors that may have a bearing on each person's individual answer to this one. Certainly one th fact might be this one. Athletics by itself is not wrong. Taking care of the body by itself is not wrong. In fact, aren't we told in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, Glorify God in your body and in your mind which are God's. This body is in fact being given to us. God does wish that we care for it in a reasonable way. Now, as we do that, of course, there might be those who we would listen with care. Our doctors and other health professionals often tell us a good amount of movement, a good amount of exercise is healthy for us. Could a Christian go to one of these health places, a gym, if you please? I would ask you to notice some of these verses. Paul referred in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 and following, to an athlete... And Paul said this is a good thing to appreciate that an athlete, as he or she hones their skills, practicing accordingly, they develop patience and self-control and temperance. Those are worthwhile characteristics even for any of us, aren't they? But it might be added to that. I suppose the thing that no doubt was a concern to the person who asked this, it may well be the case that at a gym, or at one of these places, there may be many who are dressed immodestly. There may be many. There may be men who have no shirt on. The ladies may in fact be wearing what's more or less nothing but undergarments. 
So we should be quick to say this. This is a definite concern. There are some health places, I would suppose, who demand that those who participate or come there, they at least do wear more than the most basic amount of clothing. So that may not be a concern at every health facility. May I say, one more thing though, if this particular place is one in which people do dress immodestly, and if one's own constitution is such that you have a hard time keeping your mind where it ought to be, then you ought not go to it. If you're surrounded by this and it's a constant temptation and you seemingly are having a difficult time overcoming it and your mind is always directed to where it ought not be and you know that based on the Word of God, I would suggest find a different health club. Find a different gym. Find some other way to, in fact, have that kind of activity for it's certainly good to have it, but not in that way. Your spiritual salvation is still more important. In 1 Timothy 4 verse 8, Paul said it like this. He highlighted that bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. Now may I encourage us, let's not take that verse too far. He did not say bodily exercise profits nothing. He just said it profits little in comparison to the, the characteristics you gain by way of godliness. So it isn't wrong to take care of the body, but let's not ever jeopardize our eternal salvation. If this kind of thing is a temptation, if it's a matter that leads us into thinking evil thoughts, we ought to find some other way to, in fact, have that activity. It is with that that we might close that slide and stay this. As I mentioned earlier, there are several factors that go into this. Another one is the conscience. There could be a such situation where maybe one individual is not bothered by the kind of things that occur there, but on the other hand, a weaker individual, a weaker Christian might well be bothered, and so there's a degree of consideration of self-examination. Paul taught in Romans 14, 23, that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So if that does violate conscience, then you mustn't go. You must find some other way to, to have that kind of activity that in fact would be acceptable and pleasing. So we've looked at two questions tonight, and both have been fantastic questions. Let's look at a third one. Another one that was asked. Do we know what Jesus looked like? Does the Bible give us any indication what His physical appearance may have been? I find a question like this one very telling and also very interesting. I think there's some initial comments worthy to make, and I would ask that you start like this. First of all, the Bible does not give us in detailed character what the Lord looked like in the person. I think we can each say that as we have read from Genesis all the way to Revelation, although much is said about Jesus, a lot about His teaching, a lot about His behavior among people, and a lot about the fact that He came and died. Aren't you impressed that we are given no detailed description about His physical appearance? Now I realize we've seen lots of artists who have tried to draw pictures, and if you look in books, you see many things with pictures about what He may have looked like. 
I would encourage you to take all of them with a grain of salt. You see lots of pictures sometimes with long hair. I seriously doubt Jesus had long hair. I don't know that, but I seriously doubt it. There are others that portray him in some very interesting physical characteristics. In answer to this question, here's what we know. It will be fairly limited. We do know from Matthew 13, 55, there it says he was the son of a carpenter. So we know that his dad, Joseph, his stepfather, I guess I should say, was a carpenter. Now later in Mark 6, verse 3, it says Jesus was a carpenter. So we know that he learned that trade from his father. Now, not only might we say that, is you and I appreciate the kind of physique that's involved, at least for the most part, in carpentry. You're moving wood, you're moving timbers, you're picking things up. I suspect the Lord had at least a moderately physical, muscular build. We don't know that, but it just seems reasonable to suppose such may have been true in light of the fact He is said to be a carpenter. Now, one more thing I believe we could add to that would be that observation. When the time for His death came, you and I remember the Lord was scourged. He was physically beaten in a dramatic way. And we do not know how many stripes were laid upon Him. Under Jewish law, of course, the limit was 40. But under Roman law, there was no limit. We do not know how many times He was scourged, how much blood He may have lost, but we know He was still able to carry at least the cross beam of that cross for a little distance. Even after that much punishment, even after that much blood loss, even after that great terrible scourging, He still had enough physical build about Him. He could carry that cross at least for a little distance. Now, in fact, I say for at least a little distance, we do remember that Simon was compelled to assist him. Even then, it doesn't say why he was compelled. Maybe Jesus was still bearing it, just it was a little slower than what the Romans wanted. The fact is, all that leads me to conclude the Lord was at least moderately muscular because He was a carpenter. Now, other than that, we know very, very little I would take that to be a direct message from the Holy Spirit. God wasn't concerned about you and me knowing exactly what He looked like physically. That's not important. What's ultimately important is the fact, of course, that He lived and died sinlessly, and He paid the way for you and I to ultimately be saved. And, of course, as we give attention to the gospel, what a sweet, sweet message it is. But I would say there are two more things that I do think are fairly clearly revealed in the Bible. Could I ask you to revisit Isaiah 53? That's that famous chapter that deals with the suffering servant. Who hath believed every port? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground he hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him there is no beauty that we should desire him." Now, that's the first two verses of Isaiah 53. I think several things might be noted. First, you noticed what it said with me. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. I would take it from that the Lord was not overly handsome. 
In other words, you look at him and it's not such that you are immediately drawn and attracted to his spectacular beauty. Notice, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now, I would take, we can't go in the other direction either. I don't think the Lord was terribly ugly either. He was just a typical ordinary man, at least by way of his appearance. No spectacular beauty, but no over ugliness either. Just an ordinary, common man. One more thing. Isaiah chapter 50. Three chapters earlier, this observation is made. Now remember, this prophecy from the writing of Isaiah looked down the stream of time several centuries into the coming of Christ. This particular chapter deals again with Him just like chapter 53 does. But you notice something in verse number 6. It discusses the hair on his face. I would take it from that. Jesus had a beard. I don't think there's any way around as you use that verse, apparently. Muscular in physique. No spectacular beauty, but no overwhelming ugliness either. But he did have a beard. And that's all I know about the way Jesus must have looked. Maybe you have some additional information I have been unable to find, but that's all I know about the way that the Lord must have looked. And so at that point, we close our question. What about the next one? Question number four. Would you be turning with me to Matthew 27? In this particular chapter, a very, very interesting set of statements is found. You're probably already aware that as we come to Matthew 27... Jesus is already on the cross. He has undergone the trials and the matters that have led up to it. And the time of the crucifixion has already arrived. And as we, in fact, open, if you please, and arrive at this set of verses, Jesus is already on the cross. He's already made a number of statements. But beginning in verse number 50, Matthew 27 reads like this. Jesus, when He had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost... And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after His resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. And we'll stop at that point. The question surrounds two things. Number one, what about these saints? That verse number 52 says, many saints arose. What about them? Who were they? What happened to them after they arose? And not only that, a second question comes from verse 53. What is the holy city? Is that heaven? If it's not, what does that refer to? Now, we just read that from a moment ago, but let's cast now perhaps a more noted spotlight on it and begin in the following way. As you can see at the top, I began in verse number 50. Jesus, when He had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Jesus died. He had spent six hours on the cross. It was now three o'clock in the afternoon on that Thursday, and Jesus died. And you'll notice these remarkable things occurred when He did. First of all, verse 51, the veil of the temple was rent. 
Now you and I more than once have noted some of the details of that large curtain that hung in the temple. Remember, it separated the holy place from the most holy place. This particular curtain was nothing like these. I say nothing like it in that, as you and I read in the, in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, we learn something about what it was made of, and we learn something about its characteristics. It typically was about that thick. Can you imagine trying to tear something that thick? I mean, you and I might have trouble tearing thin clothing even that we're wearing. If you took cloth, enough thread to make something that thick, imagine how heavy it was. But on the other hand, imagine the difficulty that would, would obtain from attempting to handle it. I'm told from those who researched that when it was time to wash that or clean it in some way, the Jews had to go to a great deal of effort to remove it undergo any kind of cleaning, and then hang it back up. That's how heavy it was. But you'll notice on this occasion it was torn from top to bottom. Now, it stood so tall. Again, remember how tall the temple was? It was so tall. Again, note that it was t torn from top to bottom, not from bottom to top. May I suggest to you, the God of heaven tore this. It was God who ripped it asunder from the top to the bottom. No man could have reached up there too. It was much too tall. It stood a couple of stories high at its, at its top. But you'll notice the next observation is this one. Not only was the veil torn, it says in verse number 51, the earth did quake. There was an earthquake, a very notable one, and the rocks were rent. Verse 52 now brings us to our question. The graves were opened. Now, as you give thought to, to the features, remember, people were buried at that time often in sepulchers, just like Jesus was. So there was perhaps a, a carved or caved-out place in a hill, and of course inside were the, the bodies, the corpses laid, and then a rock was, of course, put over the entranceway to that particular place. Well, here it says the rocks were rent. So these rocks were moved or torn asunder or split, and so now the entranceway was easily visible, and it was open. And it says in verse 52, many bodies arose. There was a resurrection here. Now, you and I might give some interesting thought to this. What about this? First of all, who was it that was resurrected? Well, the text is very specific. It says, bodies of the saints. So this wasn't unbelievers. This was people who were already those who believed in Jesus. Now remember, He had just died. But yet, by His preaching, by the characteristics of what they had seen Him do miraculously, they were already convinced of Him. And it says, the bodies of some of them were resurrected. Now let's go ahead and begin to ask some additional questions. For you'll notice it says in verse 53, these saints did something. Again, verse 52 says, The graves were opened, many bodies of the saints which slept arose. So this wasn't just a couple of people. It says many of them. And it says they came out of the graves after His resurrection and went into the holy city. Now we don't know how much time elapsed. It just says after the resurrection. 
So this may have been the next day, may have been the next week, the next month, but we do know it was these saints. May I suggest there may have been a great deal of utility in that. Picture it with me. Here is somebody who had already been given to belief in Jesus, but they pass away, they die. And yet a week later, you talk with them again. They were resurrected. Wouldn't that give you some impression that something unusual has just happened? Something fantastic, something spectacular, something amazing, a miracle. This Jesus fellow, he really was the Son of God. Well, may I suggest, I would only anticipate, this chapter does not say this, but I can only imagine that given where these resurrected saints went, let's go ahead and answer the next part. It says they went into the holy city. May I say that's not heaven. On that slide, I would ask you to notice that's Jerusalem. These went into Jerusalem. We know that because of several references again to Jerusalem as being described this way. In Nehemiah 11 verse 1, Jerusalem is called verbatim the holy city. Not only that, in Isaiah 52.1, one more time, Jerusalem is said to be the holy city. One final discussion point on that might be this. Do you recall the temptations that Satan brought before Jesus? One of them was, it says, he took him into the holy city and put him on a pinnacle of the temple and said, cast yourself down. May I ask, what was the holy city then? That was Jerusalem. Remember, the temple was in Jerusalem. So that phrase, the holy city, is frequently in the Bible used to identify and describe Jerusalem. Here, these saints... Maybe these sepulchers were just outside of town some distance. These resurrected saints went back into town. They went into Jerusalem and there provided witness to the fact that they, though once dead, had been brought back to life. Now please notice this was a rather notable miracle. We all understand that under the normal appreciation of things, it's a point under being once to die. And yet, these died, and yet on that occasion of the Lord's death, God provided the power, the impetus, and the thrust for them to be resurrected. Now, there are probably many more questions you and I could think to ask about them. What later happened to them? The Bible doesn't say. I take it they died again in the natural way, but the Bible doesn't say this. What it does say is what we've just read. I can't help but believe it was an impressive thing that garnered the attention of many, many people. And there were many who were at least openly willing to listen to the message of Jesus because if this man that I know died, I attended his funeral. I know he was dead. And yet a week later, I see him again, converse with him, talk to him. That would provide at least a great element to the miraculous nature of the fact what happened to Jesus. And it would provide, it seems to me as the book of Acts will later detail, a great bedrock foundation for the reality of what was to happen on the day of Pentecost. Have you and I often given thought to what happened on that great day? Recall Peter and the others stood up and preached about Jesus as the Son of God, 
who in fact died sinlessly, and that God raised him up. He didn't stay dead. I would submit, again, that was only 50 days after the actual crucifixion. With that to be said, think about the number of people in Jerusalem that day at the Pentecost feast who would have been there six weeks earlier, or actually seven weeks earlier, and they would have known what happened. And if there were evidence and witnesses who could corroborate that in fact these who died had been raised, that would have caused a stir in Jerusalem and it would have caused a great deal, it seems to me, of individuals willing to hear what those apostles had to say. It is at that point tonight. We'll close our lesson this evening. More questions await and we'll take them up on on our next question and answer session. Thank you again for submitting those questions. And if you have more, just put them in that box in the back and we'll be happy to consider them as as time will allow when we come to our next question and answer lesson. Thank you so much for your attention this evening and for consideration as always to these things of the Word of God. It might be that someone in the audience, upon examination of your heart, realizes that there's some changes that need to be made. The Bible word for that is repentance, and if we could encourage you in that way, we'd be happy to do it. Just realize the plan of salvation rests not with you or me, but it ultimately rests in heaven. And aren't we thankful God told us about it? You and I must believe Him to be the Son of God, repent of our sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and then submit to be baptized for the remission of our sins. If there's anyone in the audience tonight for whom that would be the need in your life, we want you to know we would love to surround you with encouragement and assist you as you carry out that obedience to that gospel plan of salvation. But maybe you've become a Christian at some former time, but maybe there have been influences or choices you've made and you're not proud of them. You have moved in a direction that really has made you wonder May I say, there is no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus, Romans 8 verse 1. If you're not in Christ, that is faithfully in Him, make it so tonight. Come back, make confession of these things, and we'd be delighted to pray to God on your behalf. As you repent of them, He's promised to forgive them. This evening, as we're going to stand in just a moment and sing this hymn of encouragement, it's a time of invitation, a time of the Lord's invitation. And if you'd like to come, please do it now while together we stand and sing.